Orwell writes in Animal Farm that all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. If you were to ask somebody who plays in an orchestra, which instrument regards itself more equal than all the others, you might have an accusing finger finger pointed toward the violins. After all, the violins are the senior section in the orchestra. They carry the tune in many classical works, and therefore I am told that they have the greatest superiority complex in every orchestra. Not so fast, cry the violins. The flutes and the oboes are equally guilty, uh, along with all of the other woodwinds. They regard with contempt the entire brass section. It's true, isn't it? (laughs) Uncivilized and loud, led by those trumpets who themselves, who consider themselves superior to all the other brass. Uh, Within within the brass section, there are class distinctions. The trumpets are followed by the horns, which are followed by the trombones, which are followed by the tubas. And at the bottom of every orchestra, can be found the percussion. And at the bottom of every percussion can be found the triangle. (laughs) To this, the Apostle Paul would say, there are indeed different instruments, but all require the same musicianship. There are different styles of playing, but they all must follow the same conductor. There are different tones and volumes of playing, but it's the same composer who wrote the piece and whose music must come through in the performance. And we all know that when that happens, it is a glorious miracle. And when that doesn't happen, it is an animal farm. And that was the the situation the Apostle Paul was confronting in the church at Corinth. If you want to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Quick background, chapters 12, 13, and 14, he is confronting the class distinctions and the superiority complexes of the Christians in this, in this ancient church. Let's just assume here that the people who were puffed up in pride were those who possessed extraordinary spiritual gifts. And by that, I'm referring to, to the sign gifts, as they're sometimes called. The gifts of prophecy tongues, um, a couple of others here. Paul criticizes the attitude and the behaviors that, that are on display by them, chapters 12 through 14. He begins it right here in verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says that Jesus is accursed. And no one, no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit of God. Now, I, I have seen, and you have too, people who claim to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit and who have done some terribly bizarre things under that influence. Uh, in fact, I've been there and done that. <laughs> a 
Like when you think you're being controlled by the Spirit, it's, it's really strange. You almost enter into an altered state of consciousness. And it's, it's there in that uh, altered state that the most ridiculous behavior can result. And my guess is that that was happening here. A handful of Christians in this little church during Sunday morning worship service had, in their spiritual frenzy, when they were speaking by the Spirit, instead of saying something like, Jesus was accursed on the tree, on the cross, they, they say, Jesus is accursed. And then they can continue on just like nothing else happened. And maybe they start laughing of the Toronto blessing hits them afterward. But they just continue on in their, their prophecy in tongues. And Paul says, that is not Pentecost. That is not the Spirit of God. Um, here's what you need to understand. Verse 4. Now, there are a variety of spirit, or varieties of gifts, yes, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, yes, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. These are important verses. And I, I, the reason I want you to see that, nowhere in the Bible are you going to find a Trinity verse where it explicitly says that our God is one God in three persons. But notice, the Trinity is implied here, as it is in, in many other places in the Bible. You have in verse 4, the Spirit. In verse 5, the Lord, which is a reference to Jesus. In verse 6, you have God. Reverence to God the Father. He says that there, that the way that spiritual gifts operate in a church, there is a unity and diversity, just like there is in the Trinity. One God, three persons, um, all doing things a little bit different, but all operating for the, for the same continuing purpose. Verse 7. And it's this purpose. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given, given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. And to another is given, according to the same Spirit, the utterance of knowledge. I say, what in the world are, are, are those two categories? In the book of Acts, there's that moment where Peter stares down a couple of so-called would-be disciples, Ananias and Sapphira, and says, why did you, you are lying about selling the property that you said you did and bringing it and laying it at our feet and contributing it to the church. You are lying. My guess is that that was an, an utterance of knowledge, being able to receive some, to know something that you, you shouldn't be able to know. It's sort of like a, a supernatural inkling that you have that might be an utterance of knowledge. An utterance of wisdom, maybe a supernaturally appropriate word spoken to somebody in a given situation. To one, an utterance of knowledge, or wisdom. To, an, to another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same spirit. Verse 9, to another, faith by the same spirit. Probably a reference to extraordinary faith. I mean, every Christian is given the gift of faith, but some have an extraordinary ability to trust God for things. I mean, everybody has faith. Not everybody is George Mueller. And to some, 
he gives that. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. The the ongoing question is whether or not these extraordinary gifts that are mentioned here are still operative in the church today. Were they designed by God to, to function mostly entirely in the first century when he was establishing the church, or are they still around today? And the answer to that question is, I'm not going to tell you. No, there are a number of people here at All Saints who pray in tongues in a Presbyterian church. Uh, at least they think they pray in tongues, and I'm not, I'm not prepared to say that they don't. I probably fall into the cautious but open to the possibility camp that there is some form of tongues or prophecy or at least something analogous to that in the world today. In fact, we have got our website finally up and running and I've got a blog up and running there. I'll put an article on the blog this week about spiritual gifts, modern spiritual gifts and how they may be analogous to the first century gifts written by a, a good theologian by the name of Vern Poitras, and you can read that and and come to your own conclusion. But I don't want to follow that rabbit trail this morning. Suffice to say, verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. He says, look at what your baptism has done. It has brought you into the same family. You think of the most noble and wealthy Roman senator in the first century and the most, uh, the, the dirtiest little plebe and Imagine the gap that stands between those two people in terms of social distinctions. Paul says that dissolves once you get baptized. That's how God has designed baptism to work. It is, it is designed to dissolve the, the distinctions, the gaps between Republicans here at All Saints and Democrats. Uh, there are people here who don't ever remember a time in their life that they didn't love, trust, and follow Jesus. And there, there are people here who formerly ran with the Hell's Angels, and they can tell you the exact date and time of their conversion. Uh, we have people here who do not have high school diplomas. We have others with multiple PhDs. We have guys who don't know how to change the oil in their, their car's engine. And... We have, we have guys that can rebuild an entire car engine. And um, I'm the former of those two, not the latter. <laughs> but the point being that all of the traditional social divisions that are, that are out there in the wild, wide culture get washed away by the water of baptism. For baptism is the doorway the Spirit uses to bring us in and to bring us together. For we were all baptized into one body, 
Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit, which is the spirit of Pentecost. Let's start out with the definition of a spiritual gift that, a good definition of a spiritual gift that Tim Keller came up with. He says that a spiritual gift is an ability that comes to you freely for the purpose of service, so as to build up the Christian community in depth and size. An ability that comes to you freely for the purpose of Christian service. You know, I'm not a big fan of sermon uh, alliterations or catchy phrases or or sharp definitions, but as, as far as I'm concerned, that's a pretty good one. Spiritual gifts are for for service, which service means to put the needs of the community ahead of your own individual needs, which stands about as stark a contrast as there could exist between uh, the consumerist culture that we live in uh, and the kind of culture, the spiritual gift culture, if I could use that phrase, that God wants to be present in, in every Christian church. Out there, everybody in our culture is trying to get their own individual needs met at the lowest possible cost to themselves, at a cost that is beneficial to them. And the remarkable thing, what the third person of the Trinity is trying to do is to overcome that which is our most natural inclination as as Boiseans, which is to be a consumerist. The third person of the Trinity is... It's trying to take us from a consumerist mindset to the mindset of a distributor. I'm going to freely distribute that which the Spirit has freely given to me. I can't take any credit for any of it because it was a gift that was given to me in the first place. But but I would say this, that if the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, you no longer approach Christianity as a consumer of religious goods and services, but you begin to think of yourself as a distributor who puts the needs of the community before your own individual needs. And that's a message that Christians around here need to hear, isn't it? Brian Fry preached a really strong sermon back in January on a similar passage, you may recall, from Romans chapter 12. I want to reiterate something he said at the end of that sermon. He said that your, basically your spiritual gifts don't have to be used exclusively within the confines of the local church. And there's no doubt that Paul had the local church specifically in mind when he's writing Romans chapter, or 1 Corinthians chapter 12, but, but I worry that we as pastors kind of give off a false impression that if you're not doing something specific in your local church, specific service within your local church, as though you're, you're not being faithful to God, what I would say is this, that any service done in the name of Jesus with the gifts, talents, abilities, powers that Jesus has provided you, any service that is done in the name of Jesus is a legitimate expression of the Holy Spirit, uh, of God's design at work in your life. If Love, Love Inc., you may be familiar with them, Love, Love in the Name of Christ and the Treasure Valley needs somebody who, with organizational skills, 
and that's what the Holy Spirit has provided you, and that's and you can only do that or or serve in some other capacity in your local church. Well, we'll serve with love, Inc. If you're if you're a, a, a gifted inductive Bible study teacher and Bible study fellowship needs that and it fits you well. Paul says there are a variety of activities and a variety of services and uh, I don't want you to get the impression just because I'm in front of you every Sunday that we have a monopoly on, on the kingdoms, on the Spirit's gifts and work. I want you to feel free to, to use them broadly. I mean, let's say you have the gift of evangelism and you also have the gift of a love for soccer. Go coach that 10-year-old boys team. I mean, how else are we going to do evangelism in the Treasure Valley than to have some people with that gift loving and serving uh, parents and, and those little boys and, and doing that with, with all that you have? And frankly, if you coach a soccer team, that's going to take pretty much all of your, your time and effort. And that's a good way to do it. Love those kids. Lead some of those parents to Jesus. You know, Boise is, we've said before, a major refugee destination city. Uh, harness your gifts to serve that under, underserved population. Um, the good news is that the majority of you are already doing so. Some of you actually work on aircrafts out in Nampa at MAF, Mission Aviation Fellowship. Some of you uh, teach in a Christian school, local Christian school. I do not want local Christian school teachers then to have to come in and teach Sunday school on Sunday. They are already maxed out teaching. That should not should not be. Um, don't feel obligated to do that. Some of you volunteer in your local uh, PTA at your your local public school. If it is service in the name of Jesus and with the talents, gifts, and abilities that that same Jesus has given you then I just want you to be able to know and say, here is where my spiritual gifts are at work. Like, I want you to consciously be able to say, to say and know that. I think an, uh, another thing it's very important for pastors and those in church leadership is to respond to the, the way that God is calling people where he's calling them to go. Um, we thought that God was calling us to, to go to the Yakima Indian Reservation this year. Apparently he's not, because only two people have signed up. So we decided on Tuesday that we're going to cancel the, the, Yakima, um, the Yakima project. I'm okay with that. I really am, as long as you're distributing your gifts somewhere. Apparently the Holy Spirit did not either gift enough of us with, um, with that passion and call to serve. The good news is that he did gift and call eight or so people to go up to Royal Family Kids Camp. Um, Christ be praised. So if there's not enough people with one spiritual gift and interest, it is important like for us in leadership to not try to pound the, the, the square peg into the round hole, but, but to respond to it. That's how ministry works. What I hope doesn't happen, and what I've seen, like the number, 
number one way for a church to die is for it to invest all of its resources on its own members. If you're spending all of your spiritual gifts on existing Christians and inside your own four walls, if um, when the budgetary funds are used almost exclusively to meet the needs of Christians, when most of the conflicts that you have in church are, uh, result, revolve around members who are just not getting the things uh, that they're wanting or getting things their way, when gifts are being used not, and they're not going out into the wider community in Jesus' name, that's, I mean, that church may not be dead in five years, That'll be a, that church will be dead in, in 15. I don't think that that's what's happening here. But you, every church has to strike a balance between, to la, use a, a typical phrase, in-reach and outreach. Every church has to figure out how the, how the Holy Spirit's gifts are supposed to work in that matrix. So going back to our definition, Spiritual gift, an ability that comes to you freely for the purpose of service so as to build up the Christian community in depth and size. Sometimes that's found inside of the local church. Sometimes that's found, some people work really well in a blue-collar context, other people in a white-collar context. Sometimes inside, sometimes outside. The Holy Spirit is going to bring a distinctively you piece to the body of Christ. And the question is, what are you? And where is that? You know, not every one of us are called to pray six hours a day or to ring doorbells in our neighborhoods or, or to start crisis pregnancy centers. But each of us is called to prayerfully, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, determine a set of priorities and then pursue those priorities with, with the power that the Holy Spirit gives us, with vigor and with passion. Another important point I want to make all spiritual gifts need to be tested on the basis of whether or not they promote the common good. Did you see that in the passage? These gifts are not provided for our, our own, own personal edification. Verse 7, each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Every season of American Idol in the first three or so episodes, there's always uh, several contestants who think that this is my dream, this is my gift. No, it's not. (laughs) Why didn't a friend or family member tell you that beforehand, before you went to audition? My guess is that in most instances, somebody did. But, you know, some things are learned the hard way. (laughs) in front of millions of watching eyes. So my attitude, I am, I'm willing to give someone who thinks they have a particular spiritual gift, give them a shot, and then evaluate it afterwards. Did this advance the common good? Uh, did this work? Were genuine spiritual gifts, gifts of the Spirit, will bring that kind of profit to the body of Christ? They also bring an incredible profit to the person who's utilizing them. If you're not a Christian and you're, you're, you're here today, let me ask you this question. Have you ever served another person and experienced just the joy and fulfillment that comes in touching another person's life? 
of course you have. Well, think of that moment. Think of that feeling and, and imagine it on steroids because that is Pentecost. When you are a channel and a conduit of the Holy Spirit, you, you're able, and you touch another person's life, and you, you see them being transformed before your very eyes, and you know that this is not me. This is, I'm not doing this. This is, this is a power that is not my own, that is, that is greater than, than my own. I, all I can tell you is that when that happens, it's like the best day of your life. And we believe that you've tasted it sort of a little bit, but there's, there's something so much more that you were made for. That's an experience we want every single person um, in the world today to have. And, and it can be had through Jesus Christ. I'm going to conclude with verse... Three. No one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. We talked about that. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. If you forced me to summarize the gospel in three words or less, those are the three words that I would choose. I think the gospel can be summarized. Jesus is Lord. The good news of the long-awaited victory over sin and evil and death has come. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Jesus has brought with him a new kingdom with a new pattern of values, with a new citizenship, within a new family, with a new spirit. He says he's given us a, a new spirit to drink from. God knows that we have pretty thirsty souls that need to drink. Um, He gives us, he brings, Jesus brings the forgiveness of sins, the promise of the resurrection of of the body, the the music of the gospel, the music that we play is found in verse 3. You may not, you probably don't know this, but it takes somewhere between 250 and 300 hours for a violin maker to to create a violin by hand. I've already picked on the violins, but I mean, I think the violins, they have to be near at the top of the pyramid. They say that the violin is the the instrument that most mimics and reflects the human voice. Uh, The violin maker, he spends very picky, isn't he, about the wood that he chooses. His very, very exact specifications he spends tons of time just trying to, to pick the right lumber. And then he spends hundreds of hours more with his knife, perfectly carving up that instrument. Then he chooses the right strings, and he's got to wind them and stretch them to just the right kind of, of tension. It takes around 300 hours for a violin to be made by hand. And nobody makes a fine instrument like that so that it would sit on a shelf and collect dust. You are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works and good music. And so it is. Yeah, you're not a museum piece. 
There are different styles of playing, but they must all follow the same conductor. There are different tones and volumes of playing, but it's the same composer who wrote the piece and whose music must come through in the performance. You are the Holy Spirit's instrument in the symphonic body of Christ, and you are created to play a piece of exquisite mo- music that is entitled better than anything Mozart or Beethoven, better, th- better than anything that they ever wrote. It's entitled Jesus is Lord, the gospel, the gospel song. Amen.